Welcome to Failed Architecture Breeze Blocks, where our editors share their thoughts on works in progress, urgent matters, and current happenings in architecture and spatial politics. My name is Michael Nicholas, an editor at Failed Architecture, and today I'm joined by Budapest-based artist Annie Schmid to talk about her new book, Private Views, A High-Rise Panorama of Manhattan, a collection of photographs, transcripts, and essays from a series of visits made to New York City's luxury supertalls, posing as a billionaire potential buyer. So, Andy, the first thing I want to ask you is, what was the impetus of this project? What was the thing that got you interested in these buildings in the first place? Um, on one hand, I'm, I'm like into heights to some extent. I mean, in this like uh, love-hate relationship with them, like I'm really afraid of heights. So there's something that really attracts me to it. So as a first thing, I kind of just really realized that most of these like super tall towers in New York are all luxury residential towers that are newly built. So I guess really what struck me first is that I really want to see the view from there in this like really simple sense. But then, of course, how I realized that all of them are luxury residential skyscrapers, also that universe started to attract me. Because also like in my previous work, I work a lot with luxury and what it means and how usually on the paper it seems a different thing than what it ends up being. Yeah, so I guess all of these struck me. It's really kind of like gathered in one thing all my interests somehow. Well, I, I guess from the book, they are luxury buildings, but the way that you focus on the interiors and these more voyeuristic shots that are separate from the kind of renderings you see in the grand photos of the exteriors of these buildings gives like a sense of sameness to all these buildings. So did you get that experience where there was concurrently the effort to make everything seem the same or be unique at the same time? Mm, I think that they really, really are trying hard to make everything unique, like really, really trying hard. But at the same time, because they want to address the same audience, they cannot really go very far with this like uniqueness. So meanwhile, trying to be unique, they at the same time try to address as big audience as possible while being unique, which is kind of like a contradiction. So they really end up with just like really different marble names and for like an unexperienced eyes, it's just the same. It's like a kitchen with a marble countertop. Doesn't really matter if it's Calacata Tucci or Chinchilla Mink. But they really phrase it as if it would be the most unique thing because this is from this specific marble coming from the most special place of the planet, handpicked by the developer himself. But at the same time, they really, really are identical, except maybe one or two of these buildings, which look a bit different. Well, what role does architecture and the branding of different star architects have in the advertising of these buildings? Huge, like really, really huge role. Because I think at this price point, obviously you have a huge apartment, obviously everything is the best materials and the highest quality. So they have to add things on top of all of these things. And top of all of these things is kind of like this like cultural capital that they, they try to sell which has to do a lot with like architects in some of the buildings, even artists are involved somehow in the, in the building. So in some of the buildings, actually, they really, really build the entire marketing around certain architects. For example, in Zaha Hadid's building, which is actually not that high, but it's, um, it's somehow the same concept of luxury, which is along the high line. The entire building is basically about Zaha, like, all the marketing speech of the agent was that Zaha is the biggest architect that was ever alive and that 
everything to the last single details. Even the kitchen counter is designed by her and that it's a unique thing because there is not going to be any more Zaha building coming up in New York for the obvious reasons. But also in other buildings, the architect's name is like really part of the branding, like really, really strongly. And also like I think certain architects represent certain things. So <clears throat> whereas Herzog and the Mauron is representing this like Swiss minimalism, or these are at, at least the concepts that the agents are mentioning. Robert A.M. Stern is representing a totally different thing. He's more this like well, very conservative or like old fashioned and he's representing the 20th century New York and old New York and it's like glorious days somehow, which I don't know if those days that they are trying to resemble ever existed, but that's the package of feelings they are trying to make you feel. So it's it's not just like a name of an architect, but really this like what they represent each of them separately. But certainly even architects that I think majority of the people has never heard of, they claim that it's the biggest architect or even they, they name them as like artists, architects. So they say that, yeah, he's, it's an artistic mind. And Jean Nouvel, for example, who was the architect of the 53 West 53, which is the tower above MoMA, to him, they always refer as the artist, which also just like, I think, puts the whole thing in a different sphere for the buyer. Like instead of um, it's just a building with an architect, it's like you're buying a piece of art because obviously people who would want to purchase an apartment above MoMA are interested in art. So somehow that's kind of the line where these like architects come in play. That's really interesting. I guess, so um, did you see the recent New York Times article about 432 Street and about the questionable quality and the conditions of living there being not particularly luxury. Did you get the sense that these buildings weren't for living or that some of the quality was maybe more for the sale than the actual use as an apartment? Of course, it's a really great article. And actually, it was um, Sam Stein, one of the contributors of the book, who sent it over to me. And this article talked about basically that the many of the tenants are now even like in like lawsuits with the developer because they promised completely different things than what the building is actually providing because there are creaking walls and really strange noises and the wind is just like moving the building a bit more than what it's supposed to be. So it's really not pleasant actually just to be there. And yes, certainly when you enter these buildings, you feel that it's not really made for living. To start with, when you enter and a building and an apartment is completely with staged furniture, and you know that this is actually someone's apartment, like someone owns it, not the developer, but it's like a resale. It's very obvious that someone who has this much money and buys an apartment for, let's say, $50 million, if it would be really for his or her own use, would contract his or her own designer and make it to his or her own taste. But these apartments really are just like, kind of like a, like a bank, like a treasure of money. So people just like keep their cash safe. But specifically in that building in 432 Park, I, I do remember that there was this noise, which is a bit hard to explain what it was, but I didn't hear it in any other building. It was just this bzzz a bit all the time in the background. So yeah, that's a failed yeah, the architecture for sure. <laughs> Good plug. So again, like with the views that the agents were always pointing out to you, to me, it seemed like the reference points are always like kind of buildings of old New York. It was the Empire State Building, the Chrysler Building, or even Central Park. And the new buildings that you were viewing 
were always viewed as either a competitor or a nuisance in some cases. Do you think these buildings will ever reach the point where they're kind of icons in New York in the same way that the Empire State Building is? Or is there something fundamentally different about this kind of development and construction? I think it's completely different, of course. I don't know how much it played a role, the fact that I was a European customer who never lived in New York before in the story, because for that, the agents really played this role of, oh, she's coming to New York, surely she will love Empire State Building and Chrysler Building and these kind of symbols of New York. I don't know if they would say the same things to a New Yorker. But at the same time, I think the other reason why they never mentioned that, look, that great new super tall skyscraper is also in your view, because if they would refer to the other one as a good one, they would fear that I might think, oh, that's a good one. Maybe I rather buy an apartment in that one. So I think also that played a role. But at the same time, I don't think that actually even these agents think about it as great addition to the skyline, which any of these buildings, which when you're in a building, they say that the one that you're in is a great addition to the skyline, but they would never say it of any other new skyscraper. I don't really think they will become similarly like a symbol of New York in any ways, because I think what makes, for example, Empire State Building so symbolical is the fact that almost everyone who has been in New York, even as a tourist, has been inside. So you have personal connection to it somehow, at least. But to these buildings, no one has a personal connection and no one ever will have. I mean, except of those few hundred people, but that's nothing. I think it it, it always will just remain as this annoyment of they produce this like huge shadows over the park and all the other problematic things that comes with them. So in one of the contributor essays, Sam Stein, who we mentioned briefly, posed the question about what the afterlife of these buildings might be. Like, is there a role for them past the kind of useful life as like a park for money or luxury apartments? Do you see these buildings having other, any other use in the, in the future? Or are they so purpose built that this is really the only function that they could serve? I mean, of course, they could be like restructured, but I just don't think it will happen in any near future, because in the near future, it really seems that there are just like more inequality coming up, which creates more wealth on one side, which creates more money to be spent on this superfluous property. So I think in any near future, there actually will be need and demand for these luxury skyscrapers and their super overpriced apartments. But but structurally, of course, I think they could be restructured. Like very simply, one of these 4,000 square feet apartment could be cut to 10 pieces. But of course, it would be a totally different thing then. And I don't know if the Michelin star restaurant would still be inside the building. But yeah, it could be. But I don't think it would be or I don't think it ever will be. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess, did you get a sense of, well, I'm trying to think of a, of a good way to phrase this, but what qualities of these buildings did you feel like was purpose-built for um, a land market that was completely stratified by inequality? Basically, like, what, I, obviously there's like specific conditions that led to the existence of these towers of like massive income inequality and like people just having tons of wealth. Was there any other way than what we talked about and where you saw that manifest in the physical form of the building? I mean, in everything, I think the, what, what really came out when I was just inside the building is like the lifestyle that they imagine these people to have, which was kind of my experience of how they talked to me and the questions that they posed me really talked about a certain lifestyle. Like, for example, when they like genuinely 
suppose that I never go on the subway or like, of course, I have the nanny. Of course, we have a personal chef and a personal assistant. I think all of these kind of like show this massive inequality, but it's not the building itself, but like how they imagine the owners of these apartments, at least the agents. But I think it's not their fault. It's probably their experience. So it's really an existing thing that 99% of people who are purchasing apartments here have this kind of lifestyle, which really is about this massive inequality. Kind of, kind of on a personal note, I was, I was curious, what, what's the deal with all the freestanding tubs? I mean, I think that kind of became this symbol or almost like a meme of the high-rise luxury buildings, because when you are so high up that you can be just like naked in front of your window and, and look outside on people doing their daily duties, that really represents this inequality as well. You're in your most intimate moments and they are in their daily life and you can look at them, but they don't see you. Somehow I think that's what really this freestanding bus stop represents. Yeah, but really in all of these apartments, I think really without an exception, there's a freestanding soaking tub in front of the massive glass window. And somehow in most of the real estate brochures, that's either on the cover or like you open it and on the first page. So it's really like that's how they try to emotionally persuade you to get this place because this is how you will live here. And, and also like in many of these apartments, there are two master bathrooms. One of them is called hers and the other one is called his. And the freestanding soaking tub is always in her master bathroom. So they were always just very personally showing it to me that imagine yourself sitting here and... So somehow I got this like a uh, nice relationship with the <laughs> freestanding soaking tubs <laughs> after a while. Well, it was, it was pretty incredible that, I mean, obviously you were playing a part in the book, but I think equally the agents were kind of playing a part too. So it almost read like the dialogue in the book was like a play. Like you're both, inter- you're both playing this role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, the, I think the nice thing that like they always play the role, but like usually um, clients don't or like clients are just really just looking at an appointment. But to me, it really felt like I'm acting for this unaware audience and they are also acting. So it's totally fine. But yeah, 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 they, they are totally acting. Like some of them really had this like, it was almost obvious that they like practiced some of the sentences or some of the things that they said that they Googled things about Hungary because I was a Hungarian billionaire and they just said it like, oh, you have a wonderful bridge. This kind of like really strange things that like, why, why do they say that? Is it going to convince me more to buy this apartment? But they just wanted to, I think, like create this personal bond with me. So I trust them more. And then I trust more their opinion about how great that specific apartment is, which ultimately will make me buy it. But yeah, 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 it is, it is kind of like a role playing this whole estate agency situation or real estate viewing situation. Right. And I love the the bit in the beginning where you mentioned that, like, once you realize that it really didn't matter the character you did to an extent, you could kind of just say these ridiculous things about other buildings and start criticizing other developments. And they played along with you. Yeah, totally. They even went further. So kind of like I gave them one bite of something. They just made it more extreme. It also was really this, like, they tried to please me in a sense. But yeah, yeah, yeah. This, it, it, it was a really nice realization when I realized that, like, Whatever I say, however I dress is fine. Really, there I cannot, I cannot do anything wrong after the point that like I'm let in because that's the only thing I have to jump through and then it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, after a while, I was just like going in my own clothes, for example, which was like really relieving <laughs> feeling. So 
there's a little kind of more pointed critique about the buildings in the essays in the end. But what, what would you like the takeaway to be about someone who obviously never had the chance to experience these buildings firsthand to, t- to take away from the, yeah, the book? Um, I think there are like kind of like different layers that I like to get through. So this top or first layer is really just people can see those views that you might wonder how they are. That's the first layer. Then second layer is kind of like show how this industry is working, which is like super unknown, I think. Well, obviously to most of the people because you, most of the people just have no access to it. And I think because it's like quite a nasty industry, it, it really is kind of a good thing, at least from my perspective, to like see the underbelly of it. And then obviously there's also this like other layer, which is like, I think it's funny somehow, this conversation. So I like to amuse people. <laughs> but also the underline of the whole thing is just this like crazy inequality that shows up in the book, which is very obvious, I guess, from the beginning. But I think when you read it, or I hope when you read it, it, it shows in this like very material sense how it actually functions. Not just like from the outside, see, there's a big building. So yeah, for example, Sam, who we already mentioned before, just wrote me two days ago that when he read that article in the New York Times about 432, he felt like much closer to it because he knew how that building actually is from the inside and he knew more details about it and he knew how it could get so high because of everything he read in the book. So I think this is also kind of something I would like for people to take away from the book, just a bit more knowledge about how this universe is working or how it actually is in practice. I did want to say my, my favorite part of the book was I loved the part where uh, they sat you down in the chair and they played the Edith Pilaf because you were European. I, I can I would not be able to uh, keep a straight face if they did that. That was a really crazy one. But there was also the one in um, 15 Central Park West. I think it's the last yeah, the last buildings uh, conversation that, that also set me down and made me imagine things, which is always like super strange when really they like close your eyes and do this and do that and imagine your husband is coming with a champagne to the soaking tub. And, and yeah, it's, it's really bizarre. Some of those, those real estate monologues. Yeah, really, really funny at times. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>